and want to hear from you today. Thank you for your servant, Carrie, who has worked hard to prepare the message of 2 Samuel 17 and Psalm 62. Use Carrie as your mouthpiece, giving her clarity of mind and speech, and pour your peace and presence over her. Prepare our hearts and help us focus, Lord. I pray that we will all be teachable and walk away from the study challenged and inspired. We ask your blessing on the children below and the caregivers, and likewise on our technical team. Bless the leadership of our women's ministries as well as our church leaders. Lord, it is our desire that you be glorified in all that is said this morning. As we head to our small groups, may your spirit follow and generate good discussion to further enhance Carrie's message. May we find rest in your word and may our hearts be moved to love you and others more. And may we find great comfort knowing your word will not return void. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Thank you. All right, can you hear me okay in the back? I have a pretty loud voice, though. All right, well, this morning we are in 2 Samuel 17, and as we read through this chapter, we will see the theme of his kingdom cannot fail. In this chapter, there is a threat to the kingdom of God and to God's appointed king, yet it serves as a reminder to us that God is in control. He is sovereign over all. It really is ironic that I picked this chapter when asked to speak. I glanced through it and it didn't seem too hard, so I picked it. It's ironic now that I've studied it because of all the things I struggle with the most in the Bible, it's God's sovereignty. I understand that he is in control, but I don't understand that he is in control. (laughs) It makes sense to me that he's in control of all the big things in our lives, but it's really hard for me to grasp that he's also in control of all the small things that happen. So studying this chapter was really convicting and served as a good reminder for my heart. Alistair Begg has two wonderful sermons on this chapter, and I highly encourage you to listen to them if you have a chance. A lot of my talk was taken from these sermons, so I want to make sure to give him credit for that. I want to first touch on God's sovereignty quickly before we get into the text, because it does play such an important part in this story. And I want to read a quote from Alistair Begg about the sovereignty of God and the human responsibility of man. And it's a little long, so bear with me. When we talk about the sovereignty of God as it unfolds in scripture, we are affirming what the Bible says, namely that God rules the world. It is his will, his purpose, God's, that is the final cause of all things that unfold throughout all of history. That includes human government, that involves the salvation of his people, That involves the sufferings of Christ. That involves the sufferings of the followers of Christ. It involves the smallest of details, for he is aware when even two sparrows fall to the ground. And it involves the vastness of the end of the universe and our eternal destiny. Now, when we affirm these things, we are affirming the fact that the sovereignty of God means that nothing is beyond his control. When we affirm the fact of our human responsibility, we are affirming the fact that we are genuinely accountable for all of our individual decisions, for all of our individual actions. And the interplay between them means simply this, that God is at work within the acts of personal freedom. He's at work within our own personal decisions, choices, and actions. 
He goes on to say, and this is the part that really spoke to me. You might say, how could it be possible that God is then sovereign over all of these affairs? Well, none of us can know the mind of God. So our inability to grasp how this can be is beyond the point. It is enough for us to know that this is the case and to rest in the fact that the events of our world, big ones, small ones, events which appear absurd, meaningless, unthinkably painful, are all under God's sovereign control, end quote. So I am really thankful for this chapter today because it did serve as a reminder for me that God is in control and that he uses ordinary people to advance his plan. And I wanted to touch on God's sovereignty first because the most important text in this whole chapter is verse 14b. As Alistair Begg points out in his sermon, there are three important numbers in this chapter today, 42, 129, and 14. 42 represents the number of Hebrew words in Ahithophel's plan. 129 represents the number of words in Hushai's plan. And 14 is the number of Hebrew words in the second half of verse 14. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Starting here with these 14 words kind of spoils the story. But the key to understanding the text here is in those 14 words. They provide us with the key to understanding what is taking place, how it is taking place, and why it is taking place. So let's review where we are coming into this chapter. A lot has been happening. David fled from Jerusalem in chapter 15, and only about a day or two has passed since then. He fled because of his son Absalom, who is leading a revolt to take over the kingdom. David's trusted counselor, Ahithophel, has defected and turned consultant to Absalom. David has prayed to God to defeat his trusted counselor. David also launches his own plan as he dispatches Hushai, one of his most faithful and wise counselors, into Jerusalem. Absalom is in Jerusalem and has received some counsel from Ahithophel. Chapter 16 ends with, now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and by Absalom. As we start chapter 17, Ahithophel continues with his counsel, telling Absalom how to defeat David in verses 1 through 4. Let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic, and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king, and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. So Ahithophel has a four-step plan. One, he will select a sizable body of troops and pursue David immediately. Two, he will strike when David's people are tired and exhausted. Three, he will execute only David. Four, with David eliminated, the people will give their loyalty to Absalom. The plan is clear. It is understandable. But it is very Ahithophel-centered. I will choose. I will arise. I will pursue, I will strike. Notice the I, I, I. Let's think for a moment, what do we know about Absalom? 
He's very handsome, not a blemish on his head. He's got woo, which is winning others over. <laughs> he's pulled a lot of people to his side. And most importantly, he's got an ego. So what do you think Absalom is going to think of this plan? As we move on in the text in verse 5, Absalom then asks for Hushai to come and also give his counsel. Maybe he wanted a second opinion, or maybe he doesn't like Ahithophel's plan because he isn't the star of it. Or maybe, let's remember what David prays in chapter 15, verse 31b. Oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. So Hushai steps forward. Absalom, rather stupidly, discloses Ahithophel's entire plan to Hushai, giving him a tremendous advantage. He asks for Hushai's opinion, review, and comment of Ahithophel's plan. Hushai knew exactly what he was up against. Verse 7, Hushai says, This time the counsel of Ahithophel that has given is not good. And then we hear Hushai's advice. Continuing in verse 8, he says, You know that your father and his men are mighty men. They are enraged like a bear robbed from her cubs in a field. Besides, your father is expert in war. He will not spend the night with his people. Hushai appeals to logic here. David is a man of war. No one could dispute this. This registers with Absalom. Hushai is essentially saying, don't kid yourself. Your father isn't going to be spending the night with his people, sitting by a campfire waiting for someone to come along. Think of him as enraged. Think of him as preparing to come and fight you. Hushai then appeals to caution in verses 9b and 10. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, there has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant man whose heart is like the heart of a lion will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and that those who are with him are valiant men. Hushai is basically saying, Everyone knows that your father is mighty. This includes your men, Absalom. Think about it. You could have a major disaster on your hand because you did not think this through properly. Next, Hushai appeals to vanity. Looking at verse 11, but my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba as the sand by the sea for multitude and that you go to battle in person. Hushai is saying, you go, Absalom, you. We will gather all the people. And after we gather all these men, you will be in charge of them. Hushai continues in verse 12. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found. And we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground. And of him and all the men with him, not one will be left. In other words, they will wipe out the whole company, not just the king the whole group, then no one else will be around to oppose Absalom. Wow, has he understood his assignment. He has fed the ego of Absalom very well. Can't you just picture Absalom thinking of being out front, leading all of those men to go fight and defeat his father? As Del Ralph Davis suggests, Ahithophel knew how to be successful against David, but Hushai knew how to be successful with Absalom. So in verse 14, Absalom and all the men of Israel said, 
The counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. So what happened here? Ahithophel's counsel was actually good. There was nothing wrong with it. It was a good plan. God's plan, though, was to establish David's kingdom. If you remember from 2 Samuel 7:16, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In other words, the Lord reigns. God answers David's prayer through Hushai. Hushai made Ahithophel's advice seem foolish to Absalom. God had ordained all of this. As Begg says, in and through the events, naturally, humanly, freely, the hidden hand of God is working his purpose out. So where is the hidden hand of God working in your life? Many times, we only see the everyday routines, the surface of life. Going to the grocery store, packing kids' lunches, running kids to practices. At least that's what my life looks like all the time. Or we see the missteps, the brokenness of the world, the sad, the suffering. But in it all, through it all, God is at work. In the storms of life, we question God. We wonder, what are you doing? Why am I suffering? Why is my friend, my parent, my spouse, my child, why are they suffering so? We despair in the moment when we don't feel God's hand on us. In my own life, I have felt this way. But I can also say that I can look back and see the hidden hand of God. When I didn't think he was there, he was. As many of you know, and as I've spoken about before, my mom died in 2016 after a nine-year battle with cancer. At the time, I was devastated to lose my mom and to lose my kids, Nana. It was never in my plan that she wouldn't be here, that she wouldn't see my kids off to school each year and be there for their sporting events, graduations, marriages. Quite honestly, I still don't understand why cancer causes so much suffering and why God just doesn't take it away from this earth. But what I do know, and this took me a long time to understand, is that God does turn beauty from ashes. We get glimpses of his beauty, we can see his hand and how he is working his good into our lives. For example, when my mom was first diagnosed in 2006, the first doctor she saw told her she had six months to live. She made it nine years. That's nine years we had with her and that my kids had with her. In 2016, she lived with us for a month and a half as she was accepted into a clinical trial at Jefferson. The trial didn't work and she died a few months later but looking back, I believe God ordained this time together so that she could enjoy being with her grandkids, who were one of the joys of her life. And of course, for me, living so far away from my parents as they lived in Georgia, this was a special time for me to enjoy having her in my home, something now that I consider a little gift from God. In 2020, my dad got remarried to a wonderful woman, Susan. Susan also lost her spouse to cancer and had been widowed for eight years before meeting my dad. Susan has two adopted children and has always wanted a big family. Well, Susan, the Silver family is here for you. <laughs> Susan now has my family, including four grandchildren, my sister's family, including two grandchildren, and my brother to go along with her two kids and grandchild. I wanted to share a post she wrote on Facebook right before Christmas. As many of you know, Tommy Richardson, that's my dad, and I both lost our beloved spouses to cancer several years ago. 
No doubt some Christmases have been tough, but today we are counting our blessings. We are anxiously waiting for the arrival of our blended families to all be here for a big week together. While I still miss my mom, I now have a bonus mom. My kids now have a bonus grandma. And my dad now has someone else to share life with. God worked through something sad and brought beauty from it. Please know that this took me several years and a lot of counseling <laughs> to get to the place of being able to see and appreciate the beauty from my mom's death. Many times we don't see the beauty from ashes, we just see the ashes. We just feel the weight of this world and we feel far away from God and our suffering. We are angry with him, we question him, we doubt. I've been there. I didn't just magically go from grieving to, oh, look at the beauty God has created. If David has taught us anything last year and this year, it's that we can cry out to God. We can ask him why. We can ask him how long, oh Lord. We can lament. We can sing his praise. We can lament again. We can be angry. We can be sad. But in all of this, we bring these things to the Lord. We don't turn our backs on him. Rather, we climb into his lap and cry when we need to, or we beat on his chest in utter frustration. This is what he wants from us. He wants a relationship. He wants us to lean on him and trust the plan that he has for our lives. Those 14 words in verse 14 are so powerful. Do you believe this? As we quickly look at the second half of this chapter, we see that God's providence is often fulfilled in unexpected ways and with seemingly insignificant people. We see how two spies and a quick-thinking woman help save David's kingdom. God uses these people to fulfill his plan for King David. All that is unfolding is according to God's plan. We must remember that we know the secret here. Verse 14b, we know that God has ordained for Absalom to be defeated because the writer has told us this. But the characters in the story do not know this. Hushai, for example, does not know this. In fact, we must believe that Hushai was dismissed after giving his counsel and did not even know the verdict. Therefore, he had to act quickly and get the message to David of what he and Ahithophel had both said and urge David to act as if Ahithophel's plan would be followed. So Hushai goes to the priests, Zadok and Abiathar, and gives them the information to pass along to David. Then they were they were then to go tell their sons, Jonathan and Ahimaaz, who were waiting for word at Enrogel, which is a spring a short way south of Jerusalem. A no-name female servant was to bring the message to them so that they would not be seen entering the city. Picking up our text at verse 18, but a young man saw them and told Absalom. So both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Behurim who had a well in his courtyard, and they went down into it. And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it, and nothing was known of it. When Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, Where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, They have gone over the brook of water. And when they sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. After the men had gone, the men came, or excuse me, after they had gone, the men came up out of the well and went and told King David. They said to David, Arise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. 
Then David arose and all the people who were with him and they crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. David was safe for now. The Lord had protected him. It's pretty incredible to think that Absalom's men were right there at the house where Ahimehaz and Jonathan were hiding, but they were safely hidden in a well. God's unfolding plan included two guys hiding in a well. You just never know where God's plan is going to take you. Do you ever stop and think about how God might be using you in his plan? I think sometimes we forget and say, there's no way God would use me in his plan. I'm not important enough for that. Maybe he would use Pastor Anthony or Tim Keller. I mean, they have theological degrees after all, right? I very much felt like this starting my role as coordinator of mission here at New Life. I have a degree in industrial engineering. I know a lot of math and science. I worked at two children's hospitals. I went to church my whole life, but I never worked at a church. So really, Lord, you want me to do this work at New Life? But here I am. Begg uses a great quote from George Eliot in his sermon. Eliot says, The growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts upon the impact of those who live faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. A faithfully hidden life and those who rest in unvisited tombs. Hmm. Maybe the hidden life of a female servant who doesn't have a name. Or a man whose home has a well to hide in. Or a woman who is brave enough to hide two men and lie about their whereabouts. We don't know the names of any of these, any of these characters, but they are playing an important part in God's plan. So, are you surprised that God would use you? Do we trust in him when he does call us? Do we trust in his plan? That his hidden hand is working in our lives. Do we wait on the Lord or do we charge ahead with our plans rather than his? David reminds us in Psalm 62, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Sisters, even if we don't see the beauty or all of God's plans here on this earth or how he may be using us, we do know the beauty of one plan, the hope that one gives us, Jesus. We know God's plan to rescue and save the world is through his son, his son who died for us, who shed his blood to take our sin so that one day God himself will be with us. He will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things will pass away. He who was seated on the throne will say, I am making everything new. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, you are our rock and our salvation. Help us to trust the plans that you have for us. Help us to trust that they are good, even when they don't seem that way. May we trust in your goodness. Teach us to wait on you, Teach us to trust you. Teach us to look for the works of your hidden hand. Help us to remember these works in our times of suffering. Help us to remember that you do not leave us and that we can find refuge in you. 
For God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence, for our hope is from him. Amen.